Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar Aparicio, and this week it is a mailbag episode. We've got hazy IPAs locked, loaded, and ready to melt away all of your plot armor. And with me this week, allowed out of his dark room for just two hours before he has to go back into his shell, it's David Newman. Hello. Well, How's hello. It going? It's going well. Uh, you've, we've got two different versions of hazy IPA. You've got one from Deschutes. Uh, I've got Sierra Nevada. I feel like I Love got that one. Yeah. I feel like I got Very the better good. end of that deal, but I think uh, you did. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but you know what? I'm I'm gonna allow it because it's free. Yeah. Hey, you know what? Free beer is the best beer, uh, unless someone tries to uh, ice you or give you a zima, in which case leave. So let's start with the rundown. We've got a couple of news stories off the top. I think this is going to be a very, very impactful signing, if only because he immediately vaults to the top of the all-name team. The 49ers sign Levin Toilolo, tight end, to the uh, to the team. And that's really, I guess, all you can say about that. I think it's Levine. I think you're missing an E there. No, there's, uh, there's definitely an E there. No, it's Levin. Uh, Adam Levine, he's the lead singer of Room 5. He's no lead singer. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that he comes with the chest and belly tattoos as well. Oh man. He's got some ink. I mean, I have no idea. Oh, oh this is the oh, most interesting thing. Like you're talking about the Chipotle bag on Adam Levine's chest. <laughs> <laughs> the Chipotle. Uh, yes, yes, I am. <laughs> That's uh, right. Yeah. So the, he now is the team's fifth Stanford player, pop quiz, hotshot who has the second, mo- which college university has the second most players on the 49ers. Behind Stanford? Yes. Uh, I have no idea. Take one guess. An SEC team. No. That would be a good guess. Iowa. Oh. They've got four right. players. All right. That makes sense. I don't even know that I can out. name them. I don't think I can name them either. I can name two. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody can get two. Yeah. But. That's, it's, the three, it's the three and the four that are really complicated. Uh, but Toy Lolo did spend two years with Shanahan in Atlanta, including that Super Bowl year in 2016. Uh, and I mean, really, I think all you can say about Toy Lolo is that he's probably going to replace our favorite. Wait, isn't that a Harry Potter character, Ross Dwelly? Maybe if he's lucky, Tiny you know, dream. I'm not going to hand him. You got to come in here and earn that job. All right. <laughs> no one comes in and beats Dwelly. Yeah. You just don't replace Dwelly. At like his that, own Harry Pottering. Right? Uh, honestly, I think this is going to be one of those signings where he's another big dude that isn't really a contested catch guy. Doesn't have a ton of like red zone TDs, but he was a marginal deep threat when he played with Shane. I think he averaged like 20 yards or whatever that year, uh, a reception, but he only had like 20 receptions for 200 and some odd yards. I don't know that he's much of any, he's a guy like beyond that. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I, I, I mean, he's never really been much of anything just besides like a depth role. Yeah. Tight end. Um, you know, I think, yeah, there's maybe, uh, you know, some more receiving ability there a little bit than like, he's not a stellar yeah. blocker or anything, you know? So I um, I don't know. I think it's, yeah, mostly just, they need some tight end depth and, and competition. Bring some, Camp bodies in. He obviously knows the system, having spent time with Shanahan in Atlanta, and I think there's I like nothing it. more to it than that. Exactly. As a reliable guy that's going to be near the bottom of the roster, I think, hey, why the hell not? I think tight end two is more than likely going to be uh, our draft pick Smith uh, out of Stanford, and I think that's going to be, that's going to be fine. Uh, but the other story in the rundown this week, Peter King ranked the 49ers seventh in his preseason power rankings. Seventh. Top ten. The 49ers, according to Peter King, one of the preeminent football writers in America, literally the name of his column, uh, is ranking the Niners in the top 10. How do you feel about that, David? I mean, I think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's tough to go there 
quite that soon. Um, I can see why, though. I mean, I think what it comes down to, right, is that uh, if you believe Jimmy Garoppolo is a very good quarterback, um, it's not that far-fetched because the most important thing to being a top team is having a top quarterback. And so if you are a believer that he is that guy and it is that caliber of quarterback, then sure, yeah. I mean, the rest of the stuff, I think uh, there's obviously a ton of holes and question marks and things that we still need to figure out about this team uh, kind of up and down the roster. But the reality is, is if he's very good, then a lot of those things won't matter as much. The other thing that he added in his, in his column was that if the defense kind of comes to form and they do get better because of the pass rush, or if the secondary takes a step forward, then he could really see the whole team moving forward. And I mean, if, if those two things, I think one of those two things, one is more likely to happen than the other. And, and so, but I do think if that defense takes a step forward, and Jimmy Garoppolo ends up playing top 10, it's, I don't know that the Niners are necessarily top 10, but they're certainly in the mix at the end of the year. If you can get average play from your defense, I don't think that's that crazy with, you know, having a head coach like Kyle Shanahan, where you know the offense is going to be good, and then having that significant of an upgrade going to Jimmy from guys like Beathard and Mullins. Yeah. um, You know, I think that it's very plausible that they have one of the best offenses in football, just from having those two be a part of your offense. Uh, so yeah, I think defense is largely a little more volatile from year to year. So, you know, you, you do see teams, um, that you're either very good. Don't stay necessarily very good. The next season teams that were very, very bad, usually get a little bit better, uh, in, in the subsequent season. So I, I think, yeah, I, I can see it. I'm not ready to go there just yet, but I, I can Neither see I. how you land there. But, but what I do like is I do like how much there is a lack of hype around the Niners this preseason because last year, of course, I mean, Jimmy Garoppolo is like on the cover of yes, the Mag- or Sports Illustrated or something, and the right. Niners were the trendy hot pick. And I, I, I think that those expectations all of a sudden make the year feel – I mean, the year was crappy because Jimmy Garoppolo goes down, but – I do think that not having the weight of being the preseason darling and having those expectations can work in the team's favor. And so I'm ready to just kind of fly under the radar until we maybe start winning games. Uh, And then if we don't, well, then, hey, your expectations weren't lifted. I just want to I just want to watch some good quarterback play for once. I know we had it. We had it. We had a glimmer of it. Just a glimmer. Uh, But let's get to the mailbag because we are cracking open the mailbag and taking your questions. We had a thread open on Niners Nation. We also had some Twitter questions. You were hitting us with questions left and right. So we're going to jump right in, right off the top. Ralph Rolferson, difficult to say, just like the Rogers. Uh, the, the lead question here, are you in the best shape of your life? Uh, you know, I don't want to say that I've peaked this early. You know, we're really, we've been building from the moment that last season ended. You know, I've just really been motivated by not finishing at the top. And, and so, you know, from the moment last season ended, I've been on my game working hard. And I feel like I'm going to peak. You know, I haven't hit my best yet. I'm going to peak right before the season. You're going to so you're going to you're going to ride that peloton yep. right into the top shape status. Right into it. I'm I'm really curious the position of your peloton. Is it in your sunroom? Is it on your fancy deck? Is it in your solarium? I mean, I have none of those things in my house, so uh, <laughs> does make it difficult to find that optimal spot. But yeah, it's it's hard. It's a hard knock life, but you know you'll live. Uh, am I in the best shape of my life? Absolutely not. I'd probably say I'm in like the lower third of my life, all things considered. But you know what? I lived through it. Yeah, I'm just, I'm on the struggle bus is all. No big deal. Uh, Let's get to some 49ers related questions though, past offense, that we had lots of variations of a very, very similar question. And really, I think what people wanted to get at was, how does a secondary shake out? Who's going to start? Who's going to play nickel? Who's maybe moves inside a nickel if Verrett pans out? And, And how do you think ultimately that that unit is going to play out? So David, why don't we start with who you think the starters will end up being on opening day? 
So I think first off, we're going to call starters five defensive backs. Yes, um, that is, is the NFL. How we're going to roll with that? Uh, it's tough. Uh, I, I think yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of guys that are that are right there. I think ultimately, you know, Sherman obviously is going to be one of the outside cornerbacks. I think you're looking at either Akella Witherspoon or Jason Barrett as the other outside guy. Um, and then I think you're looking at likely Quan Williams as your slot cornerback, though I think you're going to see DJ Reed and then possibly even Jimmy Ward. Uh, you know, I, I, I kind of hope that they end up really having him focus on free safety and see how that goes, but uh, could see him being in that mix. But I think Quan Williams right now with and, and DJ Reed are, are really the top two guys, and one of them are likely going to be starting slot. I did see several of people ask basically does Verrett kick inside right is is it something like where you know Verrett and Witherspoon are your guys in in base downs and then Wither or Witherspoon comes in and Verrett kicks inside I he's not a slot corner he's going to be on the outside he's on the outside um so I don't really foresee that happening but I think those are your uh cornerbacks I would lean probably I don't know Witherspoon and Verrett is tough I think Verrett is is clearly a better player or more likely to be a better player i think uh but his health is obviously a huge concern so i think it's just uh tough to know who to pick there until we get a little bit more information um safety wise yeah what are you thinking there well safety i do think that jimmy ward ends up being the starting free safety i think for whatever reason the team seems to love him and i hope that with one year at dedicated play at that position that ends up paying off for him in terms of being able to just stick in that in that role going back to corner though i think not just starter, you know, the the five that are on the field opening snap. I think maybe who ends up with the most snaps at that position over the course of the year. And I could see a world where, the, honestly, the likely outcome of the world is one in which Jason Verrett is the opening day starter at outside corner. But by the time we get to week five, it's Akella Witherspoon because Jason Verrett's injured. And, yeah. and then Akella Witherspoon ends up with, you know, closer to six, 700 snaps over the course of the year. And Verrett ends up with like two or 300 or something like that. And so over the course of the year, it's Witherspoon, even if the opening day starter is Verrett. At safety, I do think Jimmy Ward ends up winning. And I think Jaquaski Tart ends up being the in the box safety. And Marcel Harris becomes his primary backup. And then you've got Colbert, who's the primary backup at, at free safety. And I think I, 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 it wouldn't surprise me, though, to see Colbert win out over Ward. Only because sure. I think the team might, all things being equal, like if they're dead even, have Colbert end up being the starting free safety and basically revert to the same plan, the same, in my opinion, not great plan they had last year, which was to have Jimmy Ward be the primary backup at every single spot. Right. Yeah, I I, I think that would make a ton of sense. Um, or at least it would make a ton of sense for them to land there. I don't know. Like you said, I don't know that that's the best use of ward and i think it would be nice to let him try to stick at a position but yeah i think the i think the only set in stone spots in the secondary right now uh, assuming health of course are richard sherman on the yep. outside jaquaski tart is your your box safety yep beyond that i'm not really ready to make a ton of any other uh, predictions yeah. that i feel super confident in so one of the other questions that we have been getting a lot this offseason is around the scheme or the type of players, the type of players really that you'll see from the 49ers secondary with new defensive backs coach Joe Woods. And so we got a question from Caleb about uh, whether or not we're going to see the cover three type scheme this year or whether we're going to see more of a Tampa two mix. And, and then, of course, maybe I'd extend this question to man to man versus zone. We know that Robert Sala is more heavily a, a zone guy, but he played about 25-30% his own last or I'm sorry 25 to 30% man coverage last year do you think that the 
the scheme or the tendencies of the team is going to change very much this pre- this offseason. I would be surprised if we started seeing things like more, you know, cover two or anything like that. I mean, the system is still the system. They're still going to be largely in single high looks. And, and I don't, as long as Robert Sala is there, like I don't foresee that changing at all. And so I think you're still looking at predominantly cover three when you're in zone and then, you know, cover one man. I think the hope is that we see a little bit more man to man. I mean, it's the man to man thing is, is I think tough because on one hand, you know, if the corners are really that bad, you don't want to put them in man to man situations. Um, Let's expose them. On the other hand, I think you got to try it out. I mean, last year, zone was uh such a problem for them they just had so many busted coverages in zone and and had so many wide receivers running free down the field and so i I think there is an argument that with at least some of the corners like actually maybe all of the non-richard sherman corners that they're maybe better man-to-man corners than they are zone corners so i think think that's something worth exploring i think the athleticism is one of the reasons why they probably end up being better in man-to-man and there were games last year that we broke down where they leaned into man-to-man, especially early or coming out of halftime. And the Niners performed well. And they did so, what was interesting, I thought, was they did so more when they were going up against wide, receiver, wide receiving cores that, was, that were not, um, well, that, didn't, that weren't great. So you think of the game against Green Bay. And when we faced Green Bay, it was, they were not going up against you know, number one wide receivers. At that point, I think they were going up against Marquez Valdez-Scantling. And you got to think that Robert Sala is looking at that depth chart and thinking, yeah, I think my guys might be able to take that. Uh, and so you play a little bit more man and it ended up succeeding until, of course, you know, you, you have that debacle there at the end because Greg Maben's in because of Akella Witherspoon uh, coming right. out. So right. uh, I do hope that is the case because at minimum it puts the defensive backs closer to the wide receiver, which puts them in a position to make a play which is not always a place the Niners found themselves in in the secondary. Exactly. I, I think, you know, the, one of the benefits of playing zone is that typically you limit big plays a little bit more. So, like, the advantage of man-to-man, right, is that, like you said, you typically have your cornerbacks in closer position to the receivers, which gives them a, a greater chance of, uh, you know, making a play on the ball and also makes throws a little bit more difficult for the quarterback. And so you largely see lower completion percentages, all that kind of stuff against man-to-man coverage but you see generally more big plays because when something goes wrong in man, there's nobody to cover up for you generally, right? Like, yeah, maybe you got the one free safety back there, but odds of him being in, in position to be able to cover up for you aren't always great. And so if, if, if one guy fails in man to man and they exploit that, you're looking at a very big play, possibly a touchdown. So that's kind of the risk reward you play zone is a little bit more safe. You you're giving up some of that underneath stuff, giving them higher completion percentages, but the hope is you have kind of that lid on the defense, right? On the on the top of everything that the offense is trying to do. You force them to throw underneath, come up, make tackles. The problem with the 49ers is they played a lot of zone. They still gave up a lot of big plays. Uh, and so it just wasn't a great combination for them defensively last year. So I think, yeah, you're you're hoping that no matter what they do, the, the basic thing is that they can at least get, get on the same page from a communication standpoint, have fewer busts on the back end have fewer big plays that you're giving up. But yeah, I, I think ultimately it's worth trying a little bit more man-to-man coverage to see if some of your corners are just better in that type of role. And I do think that the addition of Joe Woods and the departure of jo- uh, of Halfley, Jeff Halfley, the, the former defensive backs coach, I, I do think that will be addition by subtraction. I One thing that Matt Barrows' interview uh, 
that he had on, on the show a couple months ago really reinforced for me that I'd kind of forgotten was just the importance of position coaches and how important they are to both the coaching of the individual players and how those players perform on the field. And I've got to think that the, the person who's in charge of making sure that the, the team knows what the coverages are and doesn't screw up the communication, a lot of that really isn't on Robert Sala. Robert Sala is there to design the plays, to call the plays, um, and to really move the chess pieces around. But ultimately, communicating that teaching to those individual players, the coach that spends the most time with those defenders is the position coach. And so I've got to think that Joe Woods is going to be a bit of an upgrade, and I think we'll see some improved communication even if the players stay exactly, well, largely the same. But let's get to a, another question about the other, the forgotten defensive position group in your mind, David, the linebackers. Uh, Hans Komaro says, I get linebackers have become less and less valued. How does it get along with the short and intermediate inside passing game getting more and more important? Uh, well, I think off the top, your linebackers have to be able to cover because the intermediate areas are now fodder for quarterbacks like Brady to succeed. I think a lot of the value conversation with linebackers comes down to a couple things, really. One is that the NFL has shown that they don't value linebackers as much. So, uh, it, you know, the, uh, part of the issue with Quan Alexander, right, is you're, you're giving him a premium contract at a position where not a lot of guys get premium contracts, essentially. So, you know, you you do have some linebackers that are very much worth it, and, and it's because of what they bring from a coverage standpoint. Guys like Bobby Wagner, guys like Luke Keekley, uh, guys like Deion Jones, you know, that have this this tremendous impact in the passing game, those guys are the the linebackers that are valuable. You know, this was the reason that we were on board with uh, potentially taking Roquan Smith, right? Because the the potential for him to be one of those game changing cover linebackers was there. And be, and just like you mentioned in the question, you know, teams are taking advantage of the middle of the field more and having uh, guys that can cover in the inside of the field, not just your outside corners, is is more and more important in today's game. Um, but you also, again, it comes back to with the value thing not wanting to outbid yourself. You don't want to go toss premium dollars at this position unless you have a guy that's absolutely worth it. You have one of those top-end players. Um, and so I think that's kind of the the rub, right? You don't want to be using really important resources that you could be using to help more important areas uh, if that guy isn't truly one of those top guys. Well, I think the reason that the intermediate and short area of the field has become a place for quarterbacks to target is very much precisely because linebackers are there. And so I think what's then the natural reaction to that? Well, it's to find a coverage defender that can be in that area and still provide run support, but then also be a, a solid coverage defender in that area. So you look like some, you look at someone like Derwin James, and he's someone who you're not going to line him out at corner, right? He's not, he's not he, although he probably could play outside corner decently well enough, but he is really an, 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 a middle coverage defender in the truest sense of the term that is, I think, where teams should start to throw really like where they should really start to apply resources. This is where I think Jakowski Tart can be a valuable piece for the 49ers. If Marcel Harris, you know, actually plays well, that's the kind of player you would hope he would become. Um, and so I really think that how does how does the whole line like the reduction of the importance of the linebacker square with the increase in passing of the middle? It's going to be in the shifting of what a linebacker actually looks like and feels like. And the the days of the 260 pound linebacker are going to be and are almost all the way gone. You're now looking at yeah. 230 pound linebackers not being like, oh, he's not that terribly small. Like as long as you can run sideline to sideline, you're probably fine. So 
I think the position shifts because what we ask the position to do is shifting because of the inefficiency that good offenses are taking advantage of. Right. I think that's that's one of the other parts for sure is that uh, you know there there are fewer linebackers on the field. You're you're gone from days of having three possibly four linebackers on the field depending on what your base defense was to now. Uh, only having two on most downs, sometimes even one, right? So you just have fewer of those players, which you know decreases the value because they're you don't need as many of them on your roster. Uh, but yeah, I think you need to be able to uh, one recognize that yes, this uh, having defenders in the middle of the field, no matter where they're coming from, whether you want to call them a linebacker or safety, is important. But you also need to recognize where the rest of the NFL is at. So it's it's I, I would say like right a good thing if the 49ers decided that like hey, we want to start drafting and signing a lot of these players that that are really good cover players in the middle of the field. That's great. You don't want to go and start giving them outside corner money or something like that, right? right. When nobody else is willing to do that, That's that takes away your advantage, right? Because you, you've seen that this is a position where we can get some value, but a lot of the value comes from because you get that at a lower cost. And so you want to still maintain that lower cost and not go out and overspend because then you lose your value that, that you could be getting because you're not able to then spend those resources at the positions that the NFL does pay a lot of money to. Yeah. You think of like a, it's like a fixer up or in a really good neighborhood, right? That's the market inefficiency. It's a crappy house you're going to have to fix, which is why you're getting it under what a fully like furnished built out house would be. Um, you don't then want to go to that fixer upper and say like, I'm going to give you 200 K over asking it's like that. Yeah, doesn't make any sense. Why are you bidding Don't against yourself? Stop doing that. Exactly. So let's get to wide receivers because that was another common area that we got lots of questions about. And first, we've got lots of variant questions that pretty much were the same as corner, really. <laughs> like, yeah. who, who starts here? Uh, how, who do you think they kind of, or where do they shake out? Um, so let's start with the same question. Who, is the, who are the opening day starters at the wide receiver position for the 49ers? So I'm going to start with receiver and say that starter is a worthless term. Um, unlike corner where, you know, if you have guys that are healthy, you're, you're generally looking, if you're playing five DBs, you know, it's largely going to be the same five DBs that are out there. Right. Um, there, there's a little bit less, even though know, some teams will do it less rotation overall wide receiver, not the case, especially for, for a coach like Shanahan. Um, it, it really boils down more to what is your role and how often do we think that role will be used, right? So I think you're looking at them likely, I, I would have to guess that they're going to keep at least six wide receivers. I think so. Um, I think they, they almost have to at this point. Yeah, they, they've just got too many bodies there. Um, I, I think it would be surprised if they kept any less than that. So I think the ones that you're automatically looking at being there are going to be Pettis, going to be Debo. I think Goodwin's still going to be fine. Um, after that, it gets a little more dicey. I think you look at guys like Trent Taylor and Richie James potentially having uh, the same type of role. And They're redundant. Yeah, so you, you wonder, and even D- the fact that Debo can play a little bit inside as well is, is fine. I guess Hurd is going to be, if you're going to call him a receiver for right now until he makes whatever transition he's going to make, uh, he's going to be one as well. So I think, what, that's four locks that you're likely looking at and then two other guys to go there. I think... Pettis and Debo are, are the guys that are your high snap count guys. They're yeah, the ones that are getting most of the production. I, I would approach this problem the same way that I would the DBs is, okay, who's going to end up with the most snaps on the year? Because I, I agree. I think that the starter is based on game script. What's your opening formation? 
that, right. di- that dictates your starter, right? Yeah. And sometimes it's one out, one receiver out on the field. Sometimes it's three. Sometimes it's two. Sometimes it's a heavy package. Sometimes it's not. It's going to depend on on the player that or, or on the on the game script. So who ends up with the most snaps? I think it's the the top three snap getters for the Niners are going to be Debo, Pettis, and Goodwin. And, and I do think Goodwin is going to be relegated a little bit into not quite Taylor Gabriel gadget level but he will go back to having a, a defined role and he will not be one of like the primary outside wide receivers. But I still think that he will be very, very valuable because he has shown to have a rapport with Jimmy Garoppolo. So I think that's going to be your top three. Um, and then I think Jalen Hurd's effectively locked and the team will probably have some packages for him specifically at wide receiver. And then the other two, I'm probably looking at some combination of... You got four guys, right? So yeah, yeah, two spots. You've got Jordan Matthews, Kendrick Bourne, Trent Taylor, Richie James. So you're getting likely two yep. from that group. Yeah, I think... I mean, the, the team has shown an affinity for Kendrick Bourne. But I think one of those spots is going to be taken up by Trent Taylor or Richie James. Because they offer, I think, a different type of receiver. A short area quickness wide receiver uh, that can again it's a backup to Debo or vice versa so you've got some versatility there and then I think it's curse or born and if born wasn't able to break through last year with a decimated wide receiver core um, and despite the fact that he led the team in receiving yards I'm not calling that a breakout season he still had like did he really huh yeah he did other than Kittle uh, yes a wide receiver yeah. that led wide the team receiver. yeah yeah gotcha. um, I think he had something like 400 and some odd yards it was not a lot um, but he, uh, if he couldn't break out last year, I'm, I'm not super confident that he's going to be able to hold off a veteran uh, who's, and I mean, Bourne's a veteran at this point too. So I, I think maybe curse ends up as that kind of big slot, maybe outside receiver, Jordan uh, Matthews, maybe. Jordan Matthews. Sorry. Um, and, uh, and that's that. Yeah. I, I don't know. I I'm less sold on that last, but I, I agree that it's most likely going to be one or the other for Taylor or James. I think it would be a little surprising this year if they ended up keeping both, both if they don't end up keeping seven, right? I think that's the only scenario. They keep seven wide receivers, which seems yeah, like a, a pretty long shot, a pretty big long shot. Um, that would be the scenario. But if they keep six, I don't think they keep both. Uh, and yeah, I, I don't know that there's like a clear front runner for that last spot. I also, I'll say that I don't think it matters that much. Yeah, I mean, at that point, if if that player at that they're looking at they're looking at special teams and their injury kind of uh, their injury support, and so at that point you look at their versatility, and I think Matthews provides a bit more versatility because he can play slot and he can play outside. Although his best position is in the slot as a big slot. I think it would be uh, the I think the more interesting thing about which one of those is 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 less that like one player is clearly better than the other or something like that. I think which one they keep says two different things about what they might want to incorporate in the offense. Like I think Bourne is very much a backup to guys like Pettis and Debo on the outside. Right. Um, Matthews would represent this player that they don't really have is that big slot type of guy. And and then they haven't really had before. So if they keep him, I think that would be an indication that they're looking to incorporate a different type of slot player that they've never had. I would disagree a little bit. I think that I think they probably want to incorporate a bigger slot. And I think that Debo and Hurd and Jordan Matthews can all play that bigger slot role. Although Debo plays it in a very, very different way. But I think Hurd, I mean, played most of his snaps out of the slot. In yeah, college. I wouldn't I wouldn't call Debo a big slot. Yeah, he's a very different player than somebody like Matthews. They're not exactly gonna be doing similar. So things. it does feel like the Niners are trying to get bigger at the slot position. And I think if you look at Debo first as an outside wide receiver, 
but who can also play slot. I think that the two players that you identify as that big slot are really Hurd and Matthews. And, and that's probably why I end up leaning Matthews a bit because I think the team is trying to get a little big there. And, and then they also have their smaller shifty slot guy as well. So I, I think that's probably where it ends up because Goodwin can back up on the outside as well. And that seems to me like a wide receiving core that is both complementary but is also versatile enough that it can withstand injuries if they do go that route. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. We've got just one more question in this section, but before we get there, a brief word from our sponsors. Final question in this area from Reconator in the Niners Nation comments. Does Hurd have the ability to become a number one receiver in this offense, or will he be a gadget? Hidden option number three, none of the above. What's a number one receiver? Yeah. Uh, no, I... I my guess my short answer would be no. I don't think he has that kind of ability um, to be a top receiver. To to be a t- uh, we'll just say number one we'll define right now as a top producer for your offense. Um, I do not think that he has that ability. Um, I think that he is someone who potentially offers you know some versatility that can can allow him to be a, a useful player in certain packages. I don't think that usefulness turns into an overwhelming amount of production at any point. Yeah, I think I would really interrogate the notion of what you mean by number one receiver, right? Top producer would be one. Uh, I, you, know, you could also define it as a, a wide receiver who dictates coverages or who teams feel they have to double team or who they game plan for. There's lots of ways to do that. I don't know that like... If it's can he be Julio Jones, no. That's the answer. Yeah, I think that can, but I also don't think that he's just like a gadget. I think he probably will be used in some gadgety type stuff, but... Those aren't the only two outcomes for Jalen Hurd's career. There's a lot in the middle there that I think can still be very fruitful and still be very good for this team. That isn't just, are you Calvin Johnson redux or are you like a larger Taylor Gabriel? Um, and so I would say very much TBD. Um, we, we talked a lot about Jalen Hurd, but I think he's got some stuff to work on, but he's got some promise. And if he's able to turn that promise into something, then good for him. But at least right now we're slotting him in as like the, the fourth or fifth wide receiver on this team at best. All right. So let's get to general 2019 offseason questions. Friend of the pod, David Campbell. Uh, he's asked probably one of the better questions that we've got uh, because I think it allows us to focus on some of the good stuff. He says it's natural for us to critique all the front office decisions, but let's focus on the positive. What move acquisition decision are each of you most happy with this offseason? David from one David to another. Man, um, I guess I've, I don't know. I feel like this is, is kind of a cop-out in some way, but I think by far the best move is... If you say getting Jimmy Garoppolo back, I'm going to kick you in the dick. Oh, no, that, that would have been a good one. No, I'm sad I didn't think of that. Uh, <laughs> I, I would say, honestly, <laughs> Nick Bosa at number two. Like, it, it, it seems very obvious. So I think from a, the, the reason I land there, right, from a free agent standpoint, I don't know that there's a ton that I loved there i think there's there's some good stuff i think jason verrett right is uh probably my favorite signing from a value upside you know potential impact standpoint but i don't think that by any means i'm ready to say that like that's the best thing that they've done this offseason uh i just think there's too many question marks with his health there to, to really bank on that but uh i i think even with the draft, even though I would have maybe preferred they traded down or done, you know, a little bit more from a coverage standpoint, staying it to taking the best player in the draft, 
best non-quarterback in the draft uh, at a position that is of value and that was something that they needed tremendously, uh, I think is by far the biggest like home run decision that they made this offseason. And it wasn't a tough decision, but it was the yeah. best one. Yeah, I to, to have a different decision, because I, I agree. I love the decision, and I love that I get to watch him play football because that's going to be a lot of fun for, for as much 49ers football as, as we watch. I think, for me, it's going to be Jason Verrett because of the value that he provides for the team. And my, my sincerest hope is that he ends up recovering and having a fantastic year. Because what that will do is I think it will incent the team to take flyers on players at a position like corner where they should in that value area. Because if, if, if Rhett works out and we end up getting a comp pick from if he leaves or if we sign him long-term if he stays, I hope that that's the, the team I hope was thinking the right way about it by saying like, huh, let's go ahead and take this flyer on this upside player that's shown that he can produce at a really, really high level but just needs to overcome some injuries and that they do that more often with players that are veterans that have shown that they can produce at a really, really high level. Because if they can start doing that, that's where they're going to have to turn when they start getting closer to the top of the salary cap. They're going to start having to make those value picks. And if they get positive reinforcement about a pick like that, I think it could be good for their overall decision-making process. Um, so that's why it's happy. It's a happy move yeah. for me. But because if it works out, I hope it alters the course of what they are able and or willing to do at positions like that in the future. Yeah, I, I will say that that one, you know, if we're talking like, okay, if we assume that each of these moves were to work out positively, which one has the largest impact? Yeah. That's, that's the one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's get to some predictions. Alexander Bali asked, with, with, the se- with last season obviously being marred by injuries and the staffing changes as a result, what is an ideal record this year? Let's start there because he's got a, a couple of other questions and, and let's, well, we'll get to breakout players in a minute, but all right. What do you think? Let's talk about the ideal record this year, which my ideal record would be 19 and 0. I mean, sure. Yeah. I don't know about it's you. always the ideal. I'm going to go ahead and start at 19 and 0. Then let me ask you the realistic question of, all right, just knowing what you know now and obviously injuries, preseason, things, all that still to come. Where do you think the Niners land in terms of record? So I, I would say that, uh, you know, if Jimmy Garoppolo stays healthy and plays 16 games. I would have a hard time seeing them finish with a record below 500. It, just assuming Kyle, you have Kyle Shanahan, Jimmy Garoppolo there for 16 games. I think that at least gets you 800 or uh, 500, eight and eight. If Jimmy Garoppolo plays a full season and the Niners end up with six wins, what what do you think happens? Like literally everyone else got hurt. No, like, let, like let's, all let's of say, the rest of the team. Got let, hurt. Let's say that we're going to get to an injury question here in a minute, but let's say that the. Uh, or I guess perhaps the better question is, what do you think happens to Shanahan and Lynch? I think Shanahan's probably fine still. I think um, they do likely look at having, like, someone has to take the fall. I would be surprised. I mean, it would, I don't know if it would be encouraging or, or not, but uh, I would be very surprised if if everything kind of stayed the same and they were able to buy another year of like, you know, we're still building this thing the right way and all the blah, 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 that they've been tossing out so brick far. Brick by brick, bro. Brick by brick. Uh, I, I, I don't know I, that they can I said survive. That I said that at work the other day. And Dear I don't God, like, no. oh, yes, I totally did. Dear Absolutely. No. And the thing is, is no one else that I work with on my team really watches uh, football. I work in, you know, a software company in the nonprofit sector. They're not like sports heads. And even if they are, they don't watch enough 49ers stuff to know that to it's like the that. catchphrase. Yeah. But I totally dropped it colloquially in a meeting. And I was like, yes, you know, we're going to go 
little by little, brick by brick. And then I stopped and I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah, it happens. But. Um, but yeah, I, I just, uh, so, so I think that something, some change would have to happen. I think, uh, Kyle Shanahan likely makes it through. Um, I think he's the one that's probably realistically in charge here as far as how this thing's going, which is the um, way it should be. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's a, that's a very fair point. So I think Lynch would probably, uh, be the guy that, you know, took the blame essentially for, for having, uh, and another night, bad season and but. Monday night football gets a uh, part of the new crew. Would they would would they put you him in a join cart? Uh, Boog and Tess? That's right. Would they what put we him? what we call? He doesn't have a cool nickname. You can't really shorten his already tiny names. <laughs> uh, Lynn, no. Boog and Tess and Lynn. No, yeah. that's there is nothing about that 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 rolls off the tongue. Uh, Not a single. Nothing thing. about that situation is very good. Not at all. All right, let's get to uh, a question from Cully, another friend of the pod. Wait, but I think oh, to wrap that up, as far as we didn't get to like a realistic record. Oh so, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think the right place, assuming like reasonable health, right? We're not saying everybody's staying healthy. That's not, not, not happened. Reasonable health. I think you're looking at a nine, 10 win team. Um, I would maybe lean 10 just because I think Jimmy Garoppolo is that good. Yeah. I think it, you'd, you, for me, I think eight and eight's the over under, right? That's, that's where you start. I think seven and nine would be a disappointment based on talent, offense, head coach and quarterback. I, I don't know, but I do think their range of outcomes is between like eight and 10. I think a lot of things would have to go right for them to get to like 11 wins. And, and at 11 wins, you're talking about a, a lot of things breaking right in the secondary and Jimmy yes. Garoppolo absolutely playing to the level that we think he can play. And that pass rush also being formidable. And, and I think it's the, the circle of feeding would be the coverage forcing the quarterback to hold the ball just a little bit longer, which would allow the pass rush to get there as opposed to the other way around. Um, yeah, to get to get to like over 10 wins, to like say win the NFC West and be, you know, a, a potential contender, you know, in the NFC, I think you're you're looking at that defense, just everything needing to break right. And they go from essentially the worst defense in football to like a fringe top 10 unit. And that would be the oh, difference man. that they would need to make in order to, I think, get there. I, I think... Jimmy and, I think and a very to, good offense can take them a long way. I don't know that they can take them to like 11, 12. Games. I think if they get to, if the defense gets to middle of the pack, I think at that point you're talking about eight, nine wins. I think if that defense gets up to like, I don't know, maybe top 10 at that point. They just need to not be terrible. And I think they're over 500. If they yeah. can just not be like one of the worst defenses in football, yeah. they're going to get over 500. Cause I think their offense will be plenty good enough. Yep. Um, it's just the, once you start needing to get higher than that and really becoming uh, a team that can compete with some of these other teams, in the NFC, uh, you, you need a defense. that's a little bit better than that. All right, Cully, we put you on the back burner, but now we're back. Uh, Cully asks, which player fans are hyped about is going to disappoint them the most. All right. So I guess my first question is what, are, what players are we hyped about? Yeah, I guess I haven't been paying close enough attention to know if we've got a, a good list here, but go for it. All right. So I think Kendrick Bourne, lots of people get hyped about him. Uh, and when he gets cut, people are going to cry. Um, and, and then I think Jalen Hurd is, is sure. I, it, people I think are getting kind of hyped about him because of a lot of reasons. And I think there is some reason for excitement there. I don't know that he will necessarily disappoint because I do think that even people who think he's very good generally think that there's some things he's got to work on. I think he's a bit of a project. Nah, man, so, number one. Um, don't know about that. 
Quan Alexander, D Ford, Nick Bosa, Debo Samuel, Tevin Coleman. That's kind of the list I came up with. And and of that those of those, I think the likeliest to disappoint is honestly Tevin Coleman, I would say. Mostly because I don't know that anyone's going to focus enough on Quan Alexander's game in order to be able to be like he is trash or he is great. Um, and I think Debo's going to be fine. Nick Bosa is going to be fine. D Ford will be in a much more advantageous position now because of uh, Nick Bosa. And I think Tevin Coleman's going to get like maybe 150 snaps, hopefully. <laughs> and so that's going to be like, all right, cool. You you careless whisper. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think he'll get more than that. Um, I don't. Yeah, I I don't think I would include him. I don't know that the hype is like that much though. I did see an article that asked like whether the 49ers had the best backfield in the NFL and I like nearly lost it. Um but I <laughs> they, to me that they might, but and no they don't. I mean that's absurd. And also who cares? Well, that's that's uh, that's more my point. My point is like cool, you have the best of the least valuable thing in the league. Dope. Yeah, I mean they and they definitely don't. Um but the two names I think from that list that I would look to are, are yeah, Quan Alexander, I, Jalen Hurd. At least to me, like from what I've seen, the, which is granted a limited amount, and maybe he's just not getting as much hype as is what he is getting in my mind. But uh, if people think that he's going to be a legitimate impact player in year one, they are going to be wrong. I'm going to throw that out there. I, I just don't see that. I think he could maybe develop into something, and I think yeah, you can see a little bit if you're taking an optimistic view see why Shanahan would like him and I want to give Shanahan every single benefit of the doubt when it comes to offensive skill position players because this offense just sets them up to succeed over and over and over again uh I still just don't think that there's any chance that he is some big like game-breaking player for this offense that's just not happening yeah Uh, I think the only other player that is obviously part of the hype train is George Kittle but he's gonna be fine He's yeah, not, he's gonna, I mean, that he, hype train is well worth he's it. He's not going to disappoint Best you. Best tight end in the NFL. Uh, follow-up question from Cully. What is, or who is your favorite long shot to make the team? Uh, and, I mean, there's a couple all-name ones that jump out. Uh, first of all, Willie Beavers. My name is Willie. <laughs> Willie Beavers. It's, it, Willie Beeman is the thing that comes to I mind here. I can't stop. Because can't you're stop not supposed to. But I did, in scrolling through the roster, and I can't, I can't say that I actually knew that he was on the 49ers roster uh, off the top of my head, but... There is a player named Jamel Garcia-Williams. He may be the new Garrigiam because he has a double L in his name twice and Garcia in his name. So if we were to pronounce his name, it'd be Jamey Garcia-Williams. Really? You pronounce it as the Y even at the end like that? Yeah, of course. Why true? not? No, no, not at all. It, like, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> That's what I'm asking you. You're the Spanish speaker. In English, it's just Williams, right? But in Spanish, a double L is always ye. Right. That's what I'm asking at like the end of the first name, though. Yeah. Is it, it gets the, the Y sound there? I don't know that in Spanish that there is a word that ends in two L's. In Spanish, if you want it to end Jamel, it'd be one L. Right. I mean, like, I'm, I mean, I'm no, I'm no yeah. Spanish grammarian, right? But oh. uh, nor am I an expert. I just kind of speak it loosely. Uh, and... <laughs> And, and yeah, I'm, and honestly, why, like, we're not trying to be accurate. I'm just trying to, like, say Jamey, okay? Uh, fair. I'm and then Garcia. I know. Garcia como que soy de Barcelona. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. But, okay, but for reals, uh, I think there's one player for me, uh, Aziz Al-Shair, actually. I think just because of his story, I would love him. I would love for him to make the team. If you haven't read about his story, 
definitely do so. If you just Google his name, Aziz Al-Shair, S-H-A-A-I-R, ESPN, there's a beautiful piece written about him in ESPN. He, when he was 15, he was at his grandmother's house and his the house started burning down and he had to run in and save his family. He basically then was, he was living in a one room motel with his entire family and he slept on the floor to the point to where his high school coach started kind of taking him in and, and like, you know, feeding him and having him stay at his house. He would, by choice, sleep on the floor instead of the bed because that's where he was more comfortable. Um, and it's just, it, it, stuff like that just kind of breaks your heart. Yeah. And apparently he's just, you know, he used to take two hour bus rides to school because he would take his, uh, his brothers and sisters to class and he would drop them off first and then he would go to school and then he would fall asleep in class because he was so damn tired. Um, but he persevered and went to Florida Atlantic. Lane Kiffin loves him. All those coaches love him. They say he's a hard worker. Um, and, and I think he, he ran with an injury, which is why his 40 time is slow, but apparently he's a sideline to sideline player and he has the, the will at least to succeed. And so one of those positive stories that you kind of love yeah. and no idea if he actually will, but if I'm looking for a long shot, that's the guy I'm hitching my horse to. Yeah, I hadn't heard any of that. So, I mean, I, I would absolutely root for that guy to make the team. Um, I was going to go with no one. I'm just going to shit on the little guy this year because uh, none of these we, guys really stand out to look, me. Man, but that seems like a, a better alternative. We we shot our shot with uh, with Trent Taylor and with Matt Breida. Matt Breida, man. I got Matt Breida. I'm like, I'm out on these undrafted guys for like at least another five years. I got to maintain that record. After Matt Breida, the stated position of the Pen Rivals podcast is that undrafted players never matter. Like that's the one you get. <laughs> he one, was the one guy. Yeah. He was the generational talent. Yeah, that was it. We we hit on that one. True story on to the next. Um, yeah, I, actually, it's it's possible that Matt Breida is a long shot to make the roster at this point. Ah, he'll make it. I I, have faith. I hope he does. I I really hope he does. But you know, Tevin Coleman hype train. I don't I don't want to start another hype train. I, I only have one hype train. It's from Matt Breida, the cheetah. <laughs> Uh, all right, so Jay Patel, another friend of the pod, asks, uh, and this is actually a good one. I'm glad that, that uh, Jay Patel asked this, but for the past five years, it seems like we've been an injury hell. And every year I hear on the pod, the injuries will regress towards the mean. But that isn't happening. Is it coaching, location, training, too much, not enough practice, luck? Um, I really love the fact that he put location in here. Like something about Santa Clara, it makes you more injury prone. I want to explore that as a it's possibility. That Bay Area air. That just fucking with them. It's just the depression from having like two story, just constant ranch homes in staccato, all like at an equal level. It's like shit. I'm an NFL player and I still got seven roommates. Like this isn't cool. I'm surprised you didn't catch me saying staccato instead of stucco. Staccato is not the word I was looking for. I but, wasn't paying attention. Uh, so, it's probably <laughs> right. Probably for the best. <laughs> uh, all right. So football outsiders. So the first, I think some context because let's let's actually confirm the fact that the Niners have been an injury hell because. It seems like we've been an injury hell, but a lot of times when it comes to stuff like this, we lose context around these ideas or, or around these feelings. So let's go to Football Outsiders and let's go to their AGL or adjusted game loss metric, which is a really good way of measuring injuries to a team. Basically, what they do is they take the, the number of snaps or the, the whether or not that player is a starter and the number of games that that player ends up being out for is, is and they adjust for a couple of things as your adjusted games lost. That way, you're not penalized for having some scrub who is never going to see the field get injured as opposed to your starting quarterback. So it's a really, really good metric to measure injury impact on an individual team. And they did do a couple of tweaks to their formula this year, but this year they saw the highest number of injuries ever in the NFL and injuries have been slowly and steadily climbing with 2018, of course, setting the record. So injuries have been on the rise 
and this was one of the most injured years in the NFL. But even then, the Niners have been pretty terrible when it comes to injuries. You look at their AGL ranking in 2018, it was 29th. 2017, it was 23rd. 24th, 27th, and then 23rd, that's the last five years. They've never ranked better than 23rd in the last five years in adjusted games lost. So I would say, yeah, it's kind of pretty accurate that the Niners have been pretty shitty when it comes to injuries over the last five years. Injury hell, check. Yes. So what causes that? And are the Niners primed for kind of a regression to the mean? I think there's a couple of things here. I think one, absolutely it is luck. But two, I think if... Again, this is completely subjective just thought, but I do think injury to a certain degree is a skill. There's some injury luck that is there, but I do think there are some players that are consistently injured. Jason Verrett, Jimmy Ward, two players that come to mind. When you are constantly taking gambles on players that are injured or have a history of injury, then I think you increase your likelihood that those players will be injured in the future. Yes, there are the Frank Gores of the world who have two ACL surgeries and their shoulders are ripped to shreds and they're 36 years old and still playing the NFL. But Gore is the outlier. I think overall, if your strategy is to draft players and try to get some value from drafting injured players, then you shouldn't be surprised if your team is consistently injured. Right. I, yeah, to me, I think those are the, the two things that I would point to. I think one, yes, it is. The, the majority of the explanation here is that it is just a really terrible run of luck shitty luck like injuries all of the evidence we have about injuries suggests that no team is consistent you know year after year like this right you have random stretches like this like I remember uh the Giants I believe it was also like had a a terrible run of like three four five years where they also finished among the worst in the NFL in terms of adjusted games lost like you have those random teams like this I feel like right before this stretch we actually the 49ers had the opposite they had like under Jim uh, yeah like a four out of five year stretch where they were one of the healthiest teams in the NFL um I don't think you can pin a ton of it I mean again without knowing and the some of the same strength and conditioning staff that were under Jim Harbaugh made it through a lot of the other coaching regimes when those injuries flipped so it's not like Jim Harbaugh had some magic sauce that he was so good at football that he had great strength and conditioning coaches he some of that staff went through and was also part of the strength and conditioning staff that was bad under Tom Sula and Kelly Right. I was going to say, like, a lot of the coaches they've had have been very health-focused, right? Like, you think of Chip Kelly, especially, Smoothie right? Power, like bro. Uh, all of the stuff that was made a big deal of, like, with the sports science stuff and everything that he had been, you know, putting into practice to try to limit injuries. Um, I think Shanahan has mentioned, you know, things like that they're fairly light on practices, like trying to really go out of their way to keep guys healthy and ultimately that that just hasn't come to fruition right so i think yeah part of it is just uh some really shitty luck and then the other part of it is like you mentioned uh taking maybe more chances than your average team on guys who have had a history of injuries right that they are a little bit more apt to signing players drafting players with an injury history than other teams and i think that hasn't really worked out. They, I, I don't know that you can point to really one example of a player that had a major injury history that they've taken a chance on that is suddenly been healthy and a big, you know, impact player for them. So Bro, Kentavia street still has time. Sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. I think overall it is probably a combination of bad luck. I, I do think you'll see probably some uplift here. I, I do think the other part that impacts our perception of these injuries is 
the precise position that is injured. I think the last couple of years you've had injuries to, of course, Jimmy Garoppolo, but I think Colin Kaepernick, of course, had injuries and, uh, you know, we had to endure Blaine Gabbert for the length of time that we did simply because Colin Kaepernick was injured. And so the last two quarterbacks that we would consider, you know, franchise quarterbacks have been injured for long stretches of time. And I think that also kind of skews our perception and affects the team in a way that isn't affected that a running back injury is affected to. Right. So sure. I think those all those things, you put them in a bag and. And yeah, I think that you probably will see some, will see some regression to the mean, but I think you know you're not going to see you know all of a sudden a long stretch of the team being you know one, two, or three. Because the other thing here is that that yes, they've been bad in the last five years, but they still haven't been worse than the league in any one of those five years. That they were last year in terms of injuries lost, they were closer to middle of the pack. They were closer to 18th. Then they were close to Tampa Bay, which was the 32nd ranked team. They lost like over 160 games uh, to injury. And the Niners lost like over 100. Like they yeah. lost a shit ton of games. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it, it's still been very bad, right? Like you you don't necessarily have to. This is an area where you have to be the worst in to like truly be in pretty bad shape. And I think they've been like part of the issue, too, is that the injuries have been so spread. Like you looked at last year specifically, um, they were near the bottom in both offensive and defensive AGL, right? So it wasn't just like one side of the ball that was affected and you still at least have your, your kind of healthy core on the other side to hopefully carry you. Like they were just banged up across the board. And I think that's really tough to overcome, uh, especially in a team that was rebuilding and doesn't have a ton of depth. Right. And, and so you, you have very few, uh, quality high-end players to begin with. And if, if some of those guys start to miss time, it just has an outsized impact on on your ability to win games. And so I think this year, though, I mean, th- again, the thing won't change. Like, if we do preview, you know, before the season and we're still going to be talking about, like, look, injuries, like, history tells us that they have to get healthier at some point just by sheer luck, right? And I think we're going to see a lot of stories like the most likely outcome is that they will be healthier. They'll at least get back somewhere to middle of the pack, even if they're not the healthiest team in football. And people are going to say that, Oh, this new training staff that they brought in was the reason for that. And that won't be true. And then they'll, you know, go on and next year they'll either be better or worse again. And it's going to have really nothing to do with that stuff. It's just like injuries are largely luck. And and that's just unfortunately how it is. I, I will say this. I think the bit the best teams have or have the ability to weather the storm of injuries. I, I think the, the the best example would be what the Eagles were able to do where like, yeah, you have some injuries, but they've got a plan and between coaching and having a player that fit, you're able to weather that storm for at least four games and that's all you need, especially if you're on a run. Really, really good rosters are able to weather injury storms, I think, unless, you know, your, your injury is at quarterback, and that's kind of a different thing, which is why maybe the Eagles is a bad example. But overall, injuries are going to be effective life in the NFL. And solid rosters, top to bottom, are able to find ways to weather that storm um, until their really, really good players come back. Um, and so when the Niners have a much more complete roster, I think, their injuries won't be as felt, I think, by the fan base. If Jimmy can stay healthy, it'll be fine. Uh, all right, let's get to a quick lightning round. Uh, really, really quick. One, two-word answers, and the questions are hopefully structured that way. You know this isn't going to work out. I know. Like this never works out. God damn it. Uh, all right, David. Lightning round. First question, go. If you are a fairy god trainer and you granted a season of health and you could only grant it to one player, who would you grant it to? Jimmy Ward or Jason Verrett? Jason Verrett. Agreed. 
There was some NBA lottery talk in the comments. Should the NFL move to a lottery-style draft to prevent tanking? Yes or no? Not to prevent tanking, but I don't know. Why not? <laughs> that would be, it would be absolute bedlam. Could you believe? It'd be fun. Trading picks would be hilarious. I don't know. I haven't thought that much about it. I don't know like, if there's a really strong counter-argument to going lottery-style, but it seems fun. Uh, I think the counter-argument would be that you don't actually prevent parity because then you have what happened in the NBA draft this year, which is New Orleans getting the first overall pick. Cool. Don't reward shitty teams. I, I, am, I am in favor of not rewarding incompetence, um, like flat out. Like, you just uh, want dynasties everywhere. It's not even dynasties. Like playoff teams are still end up at the bottom, right? Playoff teams aren't part of the lottery. It's only your non-playoff teams. And so at least that's how it is in the NBA. And so, uh, yeah, like your, your odds of a decent like fringe playoff team. Like imagine if uh, a fringe playoff team was able to add Kyler Murray, a, a team that had like a fairly good roster but was had a shitty quarterback, middling quarterback that they could never get out of. Wouldn't it be more fun for that team to like get a good quarterback and be good and a fun team to watch than having than like allowing the Jets to luck into Sam Darnold and fucking ruin him? Like, yeah. So you you don't want to adjust the lottery. You want to you just want to relegate teams. I mean, don't reward shittiness and that's, incompetence. That's all I'm saying. Uh, let's 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 create a relegation system. Let's put them all in the AAF and then make you watch them all. Dear God, no. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Question three. Vance McDonald has some hands. E A E I O. That's the username. Are you he asked, yes, I love that. That's why I wanted to read the whole thing. It's great. It's a fantastic username on Niners Nation. Uh, who do you think will be the biggest surprise cut and also the biggest long shot to make the 53-man roster? Oh, God, this isn't lightning round at all. Um, long shot we already covered. I'm yep. shitting on the little guy. I, don't, I got nothing for you there. Uh, surprise cut? I don't think that there's anybody that is that big of a surprise. This roster's not good enough for surprise cuts. Yeah. Um, Aziz Al-Shayir is going to be the, the long shot. I think surprise cut, uh, I'm probably going to go with Kendrick Bourne. Uh, and I mean, my, my other one's going to be Tevin Coleman. Oh, I, I mean, that would be, I would be a little surprised at that. Um, yeah, I think they'll, the top three running backs are going to be fine. Um, and looking quickly at the roster. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe, maybe Bourne, um, maybe, I don't know. There's not enough good players that are going to be on the cut. Like all the cuts are going to be expected. Uh, who leads the team in sacks? Ooh, uh, I think we mentioned this before at some point. I'll lean slightly towards D Ford um, because I think that there is a a very good chance that he gets the most and advantageous opportunities to rush the passer, most one on one opportunities. Um, with you know Buckner and Bosa spending a lot of time on the same side on the opposite side of him to kind of draw a lot of the attention, draw the slide protection their direction. Um, so I think it will be set up for him to get the most. So I'll go with him. If the secondary is at least decent and the pass rush meets the high expectations for 2019, do the 49ers have the offensive pieces to win a championship? Uh, defense is what? Decent? Uh, yeah, the secondary is at least decent. And the pass rush meets the high expectations for 2019. Wow. So great pass rush. Average secondary probably puts you above average defensively. Um, sure. Why not? Yeah. Do they have the offensive pieces to win a championship? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I yeah. think, again, it comes down to like the, the rest of the pieces. It's all assuming health, of course. But again, I think if Garoppolo is as good as we think he is, and I think that there is legitimate like 
top five potential with him there, it, it playing, especially playing in Kyle Shanahan's offense. I think the marriage of, of his skills and what this offense asks is very, very good and is set up for him to do very well. And if that's the case, like that is by far the most important thing to being a, a very successful and championship contending team. Um, and if you have a defense that is above average to go with that, I think, yeah, sure. Yeah, I think it'll be, I think this is where the margins really matter. When you're talking about getting to the championship kind of level, and and I think on Whether, offense, I, I think on offense the thing that that leans me in the direction of possibly is just Kyle Shanahan, like that. That's the yeah. one thing where it's like, yeah, like that. That's probably the most important piece if you're looking at offense. Um, and other than that, I think well, yeah, because yeah, the thing is, is like I would say that I don't think the defense will be that good, and so um, it's more likely that they're not at that level right now. Is like how I would would look at it realistically. But again, defense is volatile. If everything, you know, or at least a lot of things break right for them there, and they end up having that good of a defense, then yeah, I think I think it could happen. Sure. And now we're going to get to the Game of Thrones portion of the podcast. I think that wraps up all the 49ers stuff. Uh, we're going to spend the last couple of minutes uh, on Game of Thrones, recapping the last couple of episodes, talking a bit about our feelings, and answering one Niner, or I guess one football-related Game of Thrones questions and about wins above replacement. But if you have no interest in Game of Thrones, now's the time to hit fast forward. Now's the time to duck out. Thanks for listening. You can always follow me on Twitter at Better Rivals. David, where can they follow you? At PFF underscore David. And as always, go Niners! Let's talk Game of Thrones. Uh, all right, so Cully, uh, he says, which remaining Game of Thrones character had the lowest wins above replacement score? Oh, my God. Who is the running back of Game of Thrones? Um, oh, now? Currently? Right? Currently. Remaining character. Um, uh, who is back. the running back? Uh, I would say, okay, first come to mind, Grey Worm. God, mm, oh, that seems harsh. <laughs> Not as harsh as a war crime. I mean, yeah, dude was a little angry. Imagine, you know, your. I mean, you can't, you can't. Girlfriend put Tyr- just got her head chopped you off. You can't put Tyrion not on this list. Tyrion has had some pretty shit moves the last. Yeah, I mean, which is kind of bullshit. But at, Tyrion, as he currently stands, is is probably there. Like he's costing his team wins. Like he's yeah. a negative war right. Yeah, now. like like basically, if you were to replace Tyrion with a uh, a hand of the king or queen that you signed off the street, could you get better advice? I think the answer is probably yes. The answer is probably yes. Um, sad. So yeah, it's, it is sad. Uh, it, much like the writing for this show. <laughs> yes. Because it's strong, strong, yes. fucking terrible. It sucks, man. It's, it's so bad. They, they've, the, the thing that frustrates me the most is that, and I think they, they said it best on the, the Ringer podcast, but it's like we're reading the Wikipedia entry for the season as opposed to actually watching the season <laughs> because they're just zooming through everything because they, they have, they did not leave themselves enough time. And the unfortunate reality is that HBO, this is HBO's cash cow. They were like, yeah, absolutely here. Have more money. 10 episodes. Go ahead. You want a 13 episode season? Go right ahead. You can do it. Yeah. Who says do there's it. only two left? Exactly. And Benioff and Weiss are like, nah, we're done. We yeah. always said it was going to be 73 hours and that's what it was going to be. And it's just, it's bullshit because they are zooming through way too much. None of the character turns feel earned. It feels like you are throwing away character development and character arcs that have been in the works for years, and you're just left with this empty what-the-fuck feeling episode after episode, and it's like, I like, ugh. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, by far the, the largest mistake was uh, the point at which they finished season five and basically decided, uh, or excuse me, season six, 
and then decided that we've got two shortened seasons to go. Like your decision to do that was bad. If you want, if you, if you want to maintain control of the show, that decision was poor. So if you wanted out, like I can understand that. Sure. You've spent like what a decade at that point, like on this show, you want to do something else. Cool. Turn it over to someone else who wants to do it. And and by like all accounts, there were several like reasonable candidates that could have taken that over, uh, that were very interested and invested in this story and these characters that could have done a much better job at running out and giving it the time that it deserves. Um, I saw a really interesting thread on Twitter, though, that I think uh, actually Chris Brown, uh, smart football. Oh, yeah, about that Daenerys is the rational actor? No, it was this idea of, like, uh, essentially getting different types of writers, right? So it kind of boiled down to all writers fall into one of two buckets, right? You're either a plotter or a pantser, which I've never heard these terms before. Oh, pantser? I, like I can... flying by the seat of your pantser. Oh, right? okay. So I, like, I the plotters... Kind of into what plotter is, but pantser. Right. So plotters, like the the, the dichotomy essentially, plotters are, are writers that plan everything out in advance and have an idea of where the story is going start to finish before they really get going. And then it's just a matter of kind of connecting the dots. So a lot of times with them, you get... Uh, plot lines that are very tight, but you can maybe sometimes lack on character development because they're they're just they already know where they're going and they're not always necessarily making decisions that are true to what that character would do. At least it can feel that way at times. Pantsers are very much what George R. R. Martin is, which is uh, I don't necessarily know where I'm like I may have loose idea where I'm going, but I really am figuring this out as I go. I'm putting okay, I got the character in this position what do I feel like the character would do here? And I just keep following these threads and following these threads based on what the characters, what I feel like they would do. And so there you usually get very, very good characters that you feel like. And and so I think for five seasons, six seasons, they were going off the George R. R. Martin script, which was written in this specific style that was like very deep, complex characters, you know, things, actions have meaning, all of this type of stuff that, that if you love Game of Thrones, you liked about the story. And then basically Benioff and Weiss are plotters. So you had this switch into a condensed timeline where you went from one type of storytelling to a different type of storytelling and condensed it all into 13 episodes and then as, a, as an audience, you uh, are, that's very jarring, right? And I think that's kind of what everyone is really experiencing. I think it makes sense. I don't think it necessarily justifies what they've done uh, in, in really fucking being terrible this season. But I thought it was like a really interesting perspective on on kind of why some of these changes feel. Because they, they essentially, right, if you look at it from their perspective, G- George told them where he thinks that, that it's going. They had the end game in mind, and they're like, okay, We've committed, we got 13 episodes, we know we need to get here, let's make it happen. And so all of a sudden, characters at that point are no longer being like you know true to the actions that, that we would expect them to have based on what we know about those characters. They just got to get from point A to B to C so we can get to the end game. And, and that's really what has happened. But I think part of the mistake is, is if, if they are indeed plotters, and they were like, all right, we know exactly where this is going to go. And we're going to have our actors do that from and, and have that in mind from beginning to end. That's the part they missed. Danny had no idea that she was going to have the, the turn to the Mad Queen. Because I think Amelia Clark is a fantastic actress. And yeah. she is literally turning dog shit into something. She's literally on a mechanical dragon showing emotion. And you can actually see that emotion. She's working with a dog shit of a script. And you're actually able to put some stuff together. If they were to have told her from the get-go, 
look, your arc is that you're eventually going to go crazy and you're going to commit genocide, then the things that she did in season two, three, four, and five, they would contribute to the ultimate turn. It wouldn't be a two episode turn. So I, I don't know that you're gonna, that you're selling me on the idea that they're plotters. Well, I think they the, their plot like when the story became theirs, right, was after season six. I just think that, and so I think it's only they only plotted that time. The the rest of the time from one through six, they're working off somebody else's plan, right? They don't have to yeah. plot. They they have the script there for them, and then now you get two seasons where they had to be in charge of what happened. Essentially, they had to make up the story. They no longer had source material to build it from. And that's where they became the plotters that they actually are. And so they said, this is how much story we've got. This is where we need to get. Like, let's fucking make it happen. And the result is just like this complete jarring experience that's untrue to everything that we learned through the first six seasons. But I'm not even convinced that they're necessarily good writers. Like when you look at their actual credits, like I I was looking at Benioff's. I'm looking at Benioff's credit list, right? Okay, 25th hour was pretty good. Troy was a fucking abomination. It was awful. And, and, and so, because the argument that I think I would be most sympathetic to is a little similar to the argument that you're making, which is they're great adapters. They're terrible creators. Yeah. So when they're adapting a story, they're very good. But when they're creating something net new, they're not able to do things in the same way. 25th Hour was, I think, uh, his master's thesis. And it turned into a gr- uh, It's actually a pretty good movie with Edward Norton. It's been a while since I've seen it, but not bad from what I remember. But Troy was awful. That's an adaptation. And that was a, an adaptation that was complete. That's been complete for a few thousand years, actually. Like, it's, a little bit. Yeah. it's the exact opposite of George R.R. R. Martin. Yeah. And, and so I think that I'm just not convinced that they're necessarily good at the actual thing that is writing. Because you look at, at Weiss, and he's got, okay, Confederate in Star Wars on his IMDb, Game of Thrones, and it's always sunny on Philadelphia. Yeah. I don't think that that's an argument that they're good at being plotters. I think that's just more what they are, right? It's It's like... Nick Mullins is a quarterback. He may not be a good quarterback, but it's what he is, right? I think that's kind of more the argument. Yeah, it's it's not that they like were put in a bad situation and you should give them the benefit of the doubt. I think that's just kind of a bit of what the reality is, and that has led to some some kind of like really shitty effects as a as a viewer but there are so many just basic things that they don't that they don't grasp i don't grab they they, they don't oh, actually work for anything i mean strong agree it, it's it's awful i mean the the jamie character arc even in the one episode is awful the brianne thing was useless i think everything's been useless even, the only good moment of this entire season was brianne getting knighted oh yeah uh well i would say the conversation between Tyrion and Jamie in the tent when he frees him. When he tells him, like, you were the, the only reason I started my childhood yeah. was because of you. I thought that was pretty good. But that's mostly it. You, you look at Benioff's writing credits, and you've got the 25th hour Troy stay. Uh, I don't think I ever saw that. Didn't see when the nines roll over. The Kite Runner. Loved the book. Movie was not good. Um, X-Men Origins, Wolverine. Eh. Brothers. It's always sunny. Game of Thrones. Like th- there's one thing on here and, and I haven't seen stay or when the nines roll over. So if you've seen those and those are masterpieces, let me know. Maybe I will <laughs> rent them and I will dive deep into the, the filmography. But up until now, I just, I don't know that they're very good uh, because it is, they're destroying this show. And the only yeah. thing I think that we can get out of this is that George R. R. Martin says they absolutely aborted the last two seasons of this show and so let me go ahead and actually fill in the blanks. 
and actually write a good story in whatever years he's got left. Right. I think that's the the toughest part, right? Is it's it's this story that uh for for me at least that I like love, right? Like this is maybe my favorite story ever. Like I've re- I've read the books multiple times, I've watched the show, you know, a bunch of t- different times with each episode. Like this is other than football as far as like from an entertainment perspective, like this is probably the thing that I've spent the most time on uh, in my free time, like over the last however many years it's been. Um, And and so like caring about the story and then wondering whether it's going to get an ending in the books and knowing that this might be the only ending, it just, it sucks. You know, it it just, it sucks to see it end this way uh, and be just kind of a terrible final way to go out. And so I think, yeah, the one thing that would save it is if it does motivate George enough to be like, okay, people hated it. Like they finished before me, but everyone hated it. Yeah. I can still do this. And like, this is the motivation I need to get it done. Uh, that would be fantastic. But I mean, who knows at this point, but you know what? We've got memes and the memes are holding oh us God. through the meme. The meme game, game is, is strong. strong. Absolutely. Uh, but all right, this is going to be our final. We're not going to have a show next week. So this is going to be our final show before we see the finale. What are your predictions for the finale? Other than it being a steaming hot pile of garbage. Oh God, that I'll make it through awake. I think. Um, Who ends up on the Iron Throne? No one. Yeah, that's my that's my death pool bet. Is that um, no one? So I think. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's set up for for Danny to go down, probably die. I guess I don't know what they would do to her if she doesn't die. Um, how I don't know how they would remove her from power and not kill her. Right. Essentially, so I think it'll be left. Everybody will, of course, want John to do it. John won't want to do it because he's John and it'll be left to basically no one. I think if they wanted to have Bran play any sort of meaningful role in this entire season, um, there's potential there that like, so there was, I guess, I think it only has happened one time in Westerosi history, which is uh, the Great Council, which was essentially things were so fucked that all the highborn people got together and like picked a ruler somewhat democratically. Um, and so maybe you get some sort of ending like that where Bran proposes that. And that's kind of where we leave things is that they're going to establish a completely different type of government to, to rule over Westeros. Um, I think Sam Moltarly is a value pick here. He, he's the guy who's going to get you like, you know, it's probably a long shot. But if you put money on him, I hope you're getting your return. <laughs> um, I think it would be yeah. it would be really annoying if Sansa ended up killing Daenerys as well. She's just, I'm she's curious just, how are we going to get... I mean, you know what's going to happen. We can't like have the season end. We're not going to yeah. see Sansa and all the people at Winterfell again. So like, exactly. she's going to get... They're going to somehow get all together. So I think how Sansa, that happens is going to be funny. It, it, Sansa's my other favorite to end up on the Iron Throne. I think basically John ends up not wanting... So Danny dies. John's like... He recites one of his three lines that he has in the show. You know, uh, she's my queen. I don't want it. I don't want it. Um, what's the other one? <laughs> Uh, oh, I forget. There's only those, three lines. That pretty much wraps it up. I yeah. fucking hate direwolves. <laughs> uh, might as well be the third one. Uh, but bullshit. I think he ends up probably like leaving north and saying "f this noise," and then Sansa's left like, "All right, bitches, I told you, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm the one." And then Arya runs the army, and off you go. Um, I will leave it with this: the only thing that I want to happen in this final episode is for Arya to kill Danny wearing the face of a dragon. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's oh, it. That's, that meme uh, really, I mean, really got me. It'd be a hell of a power move. But yeah. that actually officially does it for this extended episode, unexpectedly extended episode of the Better Rivals podcast. Thanks again for tuning in. Uh, and as always, go Niners.